Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. For so many reasons, most of us are profoundly grateful that 2020 is over and done with and are filled with hopes that this new year will restore a sense of normalcy and return us to the lives we had before the COVID pandemic began. What's ironic, of course, is that if the pandemic taught us anything, it's that change can happen in an instant. Our control over life is an illusion, and the normal we look forward to returning to is always a moving target. Nevertheless, it's customary at the start of every new year to set new goals, dream new dreams, and seek to apply some influence over the course of our future events. And having some knowledge about global and domestic trends often makes this kind of planning more successful. So as we set sail into 2021, I'm thrilled that my first guest of the year has done some truly remarkable work that will not only help you plot out your course of action for this new year, it's likely to redirect you in the paths you might otherwise have chosen for the entire decade ahead. Having just finished recording the podcast you're about to hear, I can tell you it's a truly special, remarkably informative, and even inspiring episode. Mauro Guillen is a professor at the Wharton Business School and the author of the new book, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. It's already a Wall Street Journal bestseller and was just chosen by the Financial Times as one of their books of the year. Mauro's research identifies a stunning and long list of trends that will inevitably intersect and affect jobs and economies everywhere. So whether it's the world's rapidly aging population, the millions of job eliminations coming with the growth of artificial intelligence, or the expansive growth of the middle class in China and India, all of our lives and careers will surely be impacted. Before you put ink to paper and drafting your 2021 business plan or personal plan, you're about to learn and understand the biggest trends coming your way. And with that, I welcome to the podcast, Mauro Guillen. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to this, and we'll just get right into it. So 30 years ago, the futurist named John Nesbitt wrote this book called Megatrends, 10 New Directions Transforming Our Lives. And I'm sure you're familiar with it. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for two years. It sold 14 million copies. And in it, he identified the top global trends his research showed were about to profoundly change how we lived and work. And I, I couldn't stop thinking about that book from 30 years ago and thinking, you know, we're living in a moment just like then when many extraordinary changes are again about to hit us all at once. So why don't you start off with that as sort of a premise for introducing us to your work? Well, yes, I think we've all learned from John Nisbet and his ability to anticipate really transformational changes in the world. And I, you know, strongly believe that it's really, really important for all of us and for the organizations we work for to engage in thinking about what may happen five to 10 years down the road, because otherwise I don't think we can, you know, be effective at what we do. Otherwise, I don't think we can succeed. I think it's important for us to raise the perspective every now and then, maybe once a year at least, and think about what are those things, underlying trends that may be changing the way in which we should be thinking about the world. I think the important thing is there are trends that really don't change the basic environment or context in which we operate. Uh, those trends are going on and so be it. But there are other trends that if they continue for some period of time, they will change the underlying fundamentals of what we do. And that, I think, is what's going on right now as we speak and will continue over the next 10 years or so. Well, I was in college when Nesbitt's book came out, and I remember it vividly. And what struck me was... How did he understand all this? How did he aggregate all of these, you know, disparate ideas and bring them together and bring meaning? And so as I was reading your book, I was thinking, I have to ask that as a start. So how did you do this? How did you put this all together? Well, I think it requires quite a bit of observation and then thinking and conceptualizing of what's going on. 
So let me begin with observations, with observing what's going on. I think it's very important for all of us, not just uh, for somebody writing a book like this, to not get all of our news, all of our information from one source. That, I think, is the most critical thing. I think I've grown accustomed to just listening to one TV channel or one radio show or reading one newspaper. And if you do that, you're just going to get confirmation of your views, of your perspectives, of your assumptions, right? It's very important, I think, to cast a wide net in terms of the information, the perspectives, the data that one gets about what's going on in the world. And then, of course, you have to frame things in a particular way. You know, I frame, as you know, in the book, all of these trends in terms of lateral thinking, how the trends feed into one another, how it is very important not to analyze them in isolation, but rather to consider them as a set, coherent set of trends that are taking us to a very different uh, situation. And then, of course, you need to adjust to that. Once you've done the analysis, once you've assessed where exactly you think the world is going, then you need to take action. And you need to navigate the uncertainty that necessarily always presides over a period such as the one we're going through, a period of great transformation. So again, I think it's observation, it's conceptualizing or framing, and then it's taking action. You just said something that I think is more than apparent, particularly in America, but I think across the world, that we have this sort of polarized view of the world. And in America, with the election, you know, people are seeing the outcome of this election very, very differently. And of course, the news is covering it very differently. So I'm interested in, you know, what are your sources? Like, what are you reading beyond books, beyond research, perhaps? But what are you tapping into? to to broaden your own perspective and truly to gain an understanding that could lead you to writing a book like this? So I have a daily routine, Mark, which is the following. Before I turn off the lights, I force myself every night to read for 15 minutes on my phone about something that I know very little about. So one day could be about pottery making 10,000 years ago, the beginnings of pottery, right, in the world. Another day, it could be about virtual reality. And uh, the third that night, perhaps it's about some aspect of World War II. And if you have that discipline, and every year you dedicate about 15 minutes, no more than that, you know, you search it on the phone on a topic that maybe you think, you know, might be interesting to you that day. And then you do that day after day, night after night. You'll see that you start making the connections. And you start realizing that maybe that that you read about pottery making 10,000 years ago has something to do with, let's say, the chances that Africa, Southern Africa might develop to become a middle class society in the next 10 years or so. So I think it's looking for information, looking for ideas, looking for, you know, just in general perspectives in things that are in principle completely unrelated to what you do on a daily basis. I think that is what I think helps you sharpen your sense as to how things come together, how trends converge on one another. And I think it's by far the best way of trying to understand the huge transformations underway right now in the world. I'm smiling ear to ear with the brilliance of that. And honestly, if we stop the podcast right now, I think we will have left our audience with just one magnificent takeaway. And also, you know, what I have in mind here, we talked offline, this is going to go live on January 1st, 2021. And in a year that we're hoping is going to be very different. But I think people are looking for how can I enhance my life? How can I enrich my life? And also connect to what you were talking about, Edward de Bono's idea of lateral thinking and integrating all of this. And you marinate in all this different information about pottery and virtual reality. And all of a sudden you start to see there are patterns and that led to the brilliance of your work. So I'm so glad I asked that question. And uh, and I appreciate the, the insight too. So Let's get started here. In the introduction of your book, right up front, you hit us right in the face and you say, there's an avalanche coming, the clock is ticking, these are your words, and we need to prepare ourselves for both the opportunities and the challenges. So we're going to dig deeper into some of the key trends in your book. But in guiding this audience of leaders from all over the world, what are some of the most important big picture conclusions you want them to know right now? Well, I think the big picture in the world over the next 10 years 
essentially will have to do with three categories of trends. The first one is population trends, and I'm sure we're going to be discussing that at length. But you see, things have been changing in terms of how we approach life, how many kids we want to have, and also, quite importantly, how long we live on average. And those population trends are going to have a huge impact on the world over the next 10 years. They've been going on for a while, but I think we're going to be approaching some really important tipping points by the year 2030. So that's one. The second is emerging markets. We've been talking about the rise of emerging markets for the longest time. But you see, to this day, the American consumer market continues to be the largest in the world. But within 10 years, that will no longer be the case. So once again, a tipping point there, right, that I think we need to pay attention to. And then there's technology. We're using technology right now to tape this podcast. And we're using technology for everything, for playing, for entertaining ourselves, for working, for learning, for shopping. And so I think it is the convergence of all of those things that are going to be creating a situation that is completely different, a new world. In other words, you and I were born in a reality that will be gone within 10 years. And that's what I think we need to realize. Unless we realize that that's what's going to happen over the next 10 years, this avalanche of change, right? And I think it's very important for us to start preparing for that now before it's too late. Well, that is an avalanche when you put it in those terms. And I think it's sobering to think that as a human species, we sort of resist change. But the kinds of changes that you're talking about are going to happen to us no matter what. And I think our sort of worldview mindset changing in the sense that we've always thought in America, I think Americans tend to think that they're driving the bus, that they're the center of the universe. And as we're going to discuss, that is going to be changing in a really profound way. And outside of the three things that you just mentioned, the population trends, the emerging markets and technology, something struck me that I wanted to start off with and ask you about, which is that one of the major future trends is that women are going to be increasingly determining what happens around the world. First of all, tell us why, and then tell us what are going to be the key and likely impacts in the workplace. So how is that going to be changing how we work? Yeah, so the driver of this change has to do essentially with the increased access that women, well, I should say more women, a greater proportion of women are enjoying in terms of the education system and therefore professional careers. So there are major differences within this group that we call women. Some of them do better than others. But the overall trend is very clear, which is that women are making a lot of progress in terms of getting an education, in terms of being able to work outside of the household. And then as a result, of course, they're having fewer babies or they're having them later in life. And the implications, I think, are going to be huge for consumer markets, for financial markets, for politics, to be sure, and specifically in the labor market itself, because, uh, well, we're going to see an expansion of the talent pool. We're going to see that different kinds of perspectives are going to be represented among employees of companies because let's not avoid the issue. Women are different than men on average. They have different perspectives. They conceptualize problems in different ways. So I think just this particular trend, the fact that women are going to have more opportunities available to them in the future, is just going to change everything in the world. Once again, from consumer and financial markets all the way to the labor market, and of course, the interaction between men and women. What's the big shift? What's causing this now, or now meaning over the next 10 years? What's the big quantum leap that we're taking? And I'm going to add a second question in here, which is, and you don't really discuss this in your book so much, but do you have a sense of how women will change how we lead. This is a, an important topic for our audience. Yes, yeah, so rather than a quantum leap, the way I would put it is that we're approaching a tipping point. Let me give you an example. Right now, as we speak, Mark, in 41 of American households, where there's a husband and a wife married to each other, the wife makes more money than the husband. But according to the U.S. Bureau of the Census, by the year 2030, the proportion will be 50%. And just think about what that means. Think about the world in which you and I were born. We were very far away from that 50%, right? Mm -hmm. 
So I think that is what's going to be different about 2030, that we will be beyond that tipping point. More women attend college now than men. More women are graduating from almost every field, with the only exceptions of some of the physical sciences and mathematics. But that, I think, will also change. And then to your questions about leadership, this is really interesting. There's all of this research indicating that in countries where you have women in charge, there's less corruption. I mean, women in positions of political power. And as you know, during this pandemic, some of the countries in the world that have dealt with it more effectively are being led by women. For example, New Zealand, the prime minister of New Zealand has become famous Mm -hmm for being so effective at leading the country through these difficult times. Now, here's the catch, though. All of these research that women leaders are better, especially political leaders and all of that. Here's the thing. What I think we should be very careful about is drawing implications from the fact that at the present time, we have very few women in positions of power, and they seem to behave very different than men. In many cases, in ways that are better for society. However, what we don't know is what may happen in the future once, let's say, for example, women are half of the representatives in the U.S. Congress or half of the Senate or half of the presidents and prime ministers in the world. Then are they going to be also different or not? In other words, what I'm trying to say is that when women or any minority group is precisely in that numerical situation in the minority, they tend to behave differently than if they are more on a par with the other groups in society. And so therefore, I think it's still a big question mark as to whether if we continue down this path of essentially achieving more parity between the two genders, if women then will start behaving more like men. You see what I'm saying? Because there's always that process of convergence, right? But that process of convergence is only incipient when you have very few, for example, in this case of women in positions of power. So I think we need to wait and we need to see if this very powerful law, as you know, is called regression to the mean, actually makes women in positions of power start behaving more like men. Well, you know, I'd like to turn that upside down on you because having spent most of my career in a corporate environment and and particularly senior levels, what I saw, and this will make some people wince, my observation was that oftentimes the women who were the most successful, i.e. those who ascended the highest on the corporate ladder, had forfeited some dimension of their femininity in order to gain attention, get recognition, get promoted, and really get these jobs. So... I was thinking more along the lines of if you have more women and they become, you know, a greater percentage of leaders, let's not even say that, because I don't even think you believe that there's going to be 50-50 by 2030. But let's just say that the percentage is significantly greater and we all become more comfortable with having women in leadership. I wonder if they will become more comfortable just being their natural selves and leading in a way that is more instinctive to them rather than adapting to what they see around them in the way that men have traditionally led. That is also a possibility. And again, you have uh, described one possible scenario for this, and I've described another one. And what I think we need to agree on is that we don't know what may happen. So there are arguments in favor and against of each of those two arguments, but it's too early for us to tell. That's the point, right? That's why I think it's still a big question mark. And I very much hope that you are correct. And that uh, women, as they become more numerous in positions of leadership, both in the business world and in the world of politics, that they continue to assert even more so than in the past, all of the great positive aspects about their behavior. If you um, could give men leaders, male leaders, any guidance from what you already know to be the attributes that lead to better outcomes that are part of women's leadership or their form of leadership, if you will, referencing perhaps the prime minister of New Zealand, what are some of those behaviors? What are some of those practices? Well, I think a really important one is to be more open-minded. Another one is to ask questions when you don't know what the answer is, as opposed to assume that you know the answer. As you know, this is referred to as the male answered syndrome, right? That uh, (laughs) men always provide an answer, even when they don't know what the answer is. And I'm 
I'm hoping that throughout this interview, I will, I will avoid that bias that we tend to have. And I think the third one is perhaps, you know, we do have different perspectives about the future. Once again, on average, right? I mean, men, you know, there's tremendous heterogeneity among men and also tremendous heterogeneity among women. But what I would say is that we are still somewhat different in terms of how we view the future with women being so much more likely to take steps today to ensure a better, more secure future. So they place a premium on security. They place a premium on, I would say, avoiding risks, right? By the way, that's why I think uh, they follow the uh, recommendations of public health authorities during the pandemic uh, so much more closely than men, right? Because they understand that there are risks and men are always more inclined to minimize the risks, right? And also not rush to decisions. As you know, there's all of these studies, for example, about investing and how traders who are men tend to trade more frequently, whereas women think more carefully about doing or undoing trades. And as you know, trading too frequently is associated with lower long-term performance right? Right. <laughs> in the markets. So those are the kinds of things that I would hope that we as men would learn from women. And again, this is a generalization because there's tremendous heterogeneity among women as well as among men. Well, you really didn't go into this in your book, but your answers are fantastic. And to punctuate that, I think somewhere in your book, and I think you have like a list of sort of statistics that are going to sort of define 2030. You said that in the Great Recession, if Lehman Brothers had been called Lehman Sisters, they probably wouldn't have failed. So I thought that was amusing. Yes. Well, I was echoing somebody, and I don't remember whom, who said just that. And again, that's because of the lower level of risk aversion among men. So meaning women take uh, risks more seriously into consideration. And once again, we see this in the world of investing, just compare the pension fund allocations, right? Decisions that people make about how to invest their pension funds. And there is a systematic difference between men and women here in the United States. Let's get into population trends. No one listening can deny that the millennial generation gets a lot of media attention. You know, we're preoccupied with what they eat, what they buy, how they vote, how they live. But what you've discovered and what really stunned me is that Gen Y isn't really the fastest growing market segment. What is are the population of people that are age 60 plus that you say is going to grow by 350 million people by 2030? And so... What are the major implications of this? Yeah, so first, uh, just to clarify, each generation is now in the world smaller than the preceding generation, right? Because we're having fewer babies as time goes by. And so whereas in the past, all of the attention, as you mentioned, was on the younger age groups. Now, when it comes to consumption, when it comes to investing, we need to increasingly pay attention to the population of age 60 because they're going to be the largest segment, right? So what do we need to rethink here? Look. There's that, and also that we're living longer. So now on average, a 60 or a 65-year-old can expect here in the United States, for instance, to live another 30 years. And that's an eternity, right? That's another lifetime beyond age 60 or 65. So one of the first things that I think we need to change in terms of our mindset is this idea, which, as you know, goes back to the 19th century, that life proceeds in stages. So first we play, then we learn, then we work, and finally we retire. And that made all the sense in the world when people averaged uh, 50 years or 55 years. But now, if you live until age 85, are you going to be in retirement for 35 years? That doesn't make any sense, right? Not only that, I don't think it makes any sense for us to go to school only once because technology is changing. Knowledge is changing. What we know becomes obsolete really quickly. So I think instead of having three or four or five jobs over our lifetimes, I think we're going to have two or three careers. We're going to go back to school and learn another trade, learn another profession. And in other words, what we need to abandon is this notion that we go through different stages and there's no going back, right? There's no going back to school. You just, you know, learn something and then you try to use it for as long as you can and then you retire. I think that is the fundamental shift that is going to happen, that is going to change everything in labor markets, the way companies work is going to change, uh, the way we view life. And it's going to change also, you know, the way in which we think about happiness, right? Is happiness retirement for 35 years on average? I don't think so, Mark. I think probably most people will feel happier 
if they could continue to make contributions as workers, as employees, as entrepreneurs to society. We're not set up for that, though. You know, I, mean, no. I think about like Google and and Facebook and Apple. These are companies that the median age is under 30. And I think, you know, not only do they lack a perspective of what older people are living through and experiencing, particularly in the context of what you just described and how it's so different than what they may have seen in the past with their grandparents or even their own parents. And I think you even have a statistic in the book that says that Boston Consulting said that this is such a profound trend. And yet, you know, only like 10, 11 percent of companies have even given a moment of thought to how they're going to approach their own business in terms of their customers, but also, you know, having an employee base that matches that customer base. Oh, absolutely. Look, I think we need both governments and corporations to change. As you know, governments in many parts of the world, for example, make it compulsory for you to retire at a certain age. And I think we also need all of us to change our own mindset. And look, if we don't, then we're going to have a big problem with healthcare spending. We're going to have a big problem with public pension systems. And we're going to have an even bigger problem, I think, in terms of the younger generation refusing to pay taxes if they have to support each of them one and a half to two people on average above the age of 60 with their pensions and their health care. That's the other problem. I don't think we're going to have intergenerational peace. We may have a big war, actually, because once again, those younger generations are smaller in number. And we're already getting into this period with very high levels of government debt. So I think the only possible solution to all of these interrelated changes is to rethink, fundamentally rethink the way in which we live our lives. Well, does that mean, you know, if I'm over 65 and I need to generate some income that I don't have a traditional job, but I take a, you know, I start driving for Uber, is that what's left for me? Or do you think that companies are going to be more expansive in the sense that they they don't have the mindset that once you hit 65, you're suddenly put out to pasture. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, just as an aside, my father was a very high-ranking executive at General Electric, and he traveled all over the world, was gone for months at a time, had this extravagant lifestyle, and on his 65th birthday, he walked out and he moved to a golf course and played golf for the next 25 years until he died. It was the classic example of what you're describing. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's inconceivable to me. Well, you know, it works for some people, but I can assure you that it won't work for most people. First of all, because I don't think they're going to have the level of savings required to live in retirement for 35 years, right? Plus, there is this instinct that we all have that we want to continue being useful. And that's why, of course, a lot of retirees contribute to nonprofit organizations. Mm -hmm. They donate their time and so on and so forth. But here's, I think, uh, what needs to happen, right? What needs to happen is that we need to have a national conversation about this. You know, Social Security was created, as you know, in the 1930s, and the situation was completely different than now from so many points of view. Life expectancy, for one. Exactly. And I think uh, the gig economy that you were referring to provides some opportunities for some people who would like to you know, not only make a little bit of money on the side, but also to get themselves busy to to have something to do, to talk to other people and so on. But hey, the other option, Mark, is you go back to school when you're 60 or 65 and you learn another profession and then you pursue that line of work for another 20 years. Why not? Right? Why not reinvent ourselves, especially given that the economy changes so quickly and technology changes so quickly? Why not go back to school? I mean, this idea that you only go to school when you're young and that by age 22 or 23, if you go through college, then you're done and that's it. I don't think that works at a time when life expectancy is, you know, 80 or 85. Just out of curiosity, are you seeing that yet? Are you seeing uh, university seeing student growth in, you know, 60 plus? Not yet in the traditional degree programs that are delivered on campus on a residential basis. However, I think we're already seeing the beginnings of that trend with online education. So online education, as you know, has been taking off. In some cases, they give you a degree, in other cases not. But it is so much more accessible precisely to this group of people in their 60s who would like to, you know, learn something new. 
So once again, the other thing, by the way, that I haven't mentioned, Mark, which I think is pivotal to all of this, is to realize that a 65-year-old today is in much, much better mental and physical shape than a 65-year-old 50 years ago. This is the other thing that we need to take into consideration. So the concept of old and young has also changed. And I wouldn't refer to anybody who is 65 years old today as being old. However, 50 years ago, I think most people would call that Mm -hmm. kind of a person an old person, right? But today, I think 65 years is the beginning of yet another phase in your life, right? It's not a, you know, necessarily like a terminal point, right? Not at all. And again, it could be the moment in which you begin another important undertaking in your life. This may seem like a naive question, but what is the reason that the perspective has changed? So is it simply healthcare? Is it that we are able to extend the life of people beyond 65 in a way that allows them to continue to flourish in the workplace and doing things that people 10, 15, 20 years younger used to do? Or is there a mindset of psychological change that's occurred over the last 50 years? Well, I think there are some underlying fundamentals, such as improvements in nutrition, improvements in preventative care. We now learn that we have cancer, or we may be more likely to get cancer early on, so therefore it can be overcome. You can be a cancer survivor, most likely, in so many cases now. Also, heart disease, we know that we can improve it, you know, we can prevent it. And then also quite importantly, Mark, I think, is that we have learned that it's not unusual for us to live for 80 years. So we take better care of ourselves. We exercise more. We go to the dentist more frequently and we, you know, brush our teeth every day because we know that the teeth have to last for, you know, much, much longer than in the past, right? And on and on and on. I think there are changes in our mindset and there's also changes in the fundamentals, right? I mean, I think our ability to anticipate diseases and to take preventive action All of those screenings that we go through, you know, once you turn 50 every five years or whatever, I think they're making a big difference. And therefore, that's why when one celebrates the 65th birthday, you know, you, for example, in the United States, that person on average can expect to live another 30 to 35 years. How does that square with the stunning trend that you think that half the population, 50% of the population is going to be obese by 2030. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this is a, uh, you know, whenever we talk about progress, <laughs> for example, in terms of life expectancy, whenever we talk about progress in terms of more people having access to education and so on, there's always, you know, on the one hand, but on the other, right? And look, We've changed our lifestyle. We're more sedentary now. We don't exercise. I mean, we don't move around as much, right, in the city, at work and all of that. And if you don't make a point about exercising, going to the gym or walking, then you can effectively become more like a vegetable, right? And then on top of that, we now have more money available to us. We eat more proteins and fats. And more importantly, we eat more processed foods and snacks and all of that crap. And forgive me for using that term <laughs> on your podcast. But no worries. The, the implication is that for the first time in history, right now as we speak, we have more overweight or obese people in the world than people suffering from hunger, right? So luckily, the number of people suffering from hunger before the pandemic was coming down. Now the pandemic has temporarily stopped that trend. But then by the year 2030, as you said, just the obese category will be bigger in terms of the numbers of people in it than the uh, category of people suffering from hunger in the world. And here in the United States, by the way, 25 to 30 percent of children are obese. So this is a big problem. As you know, by the way, obesity is correlated with so many other conditions such as diabetes, heart disease, problem with the joints, you name them, right? So therefore, unless we approach this problem from childhood in a different way, I think we're going to face very, very big liabilities in the future, especially when it comes to healthcare. And remember, most healthcare spending has to do with chronic conditions. And obesity and all of the associated health risks are a chronic condition. 
We're covering a lot of ground here, which is what I was looking forward to. And I'd like to discuss China. You give it a lot of attention in your book, and particularly when you show that this is amazing. It's going to add 400 million people to its middle class in the next 10 years. So help us get our minds around that. What specifically is happening in their economy and how is it going to affect the rest of the world? Well, the Chinese economy is growing much faster than any other large economy in the world and has been doing so for more than 30 years now. And uh, by the year 2030, the Chinese consumer market will be the largest in the world. And whenever you think about a consumer market these days, it's primarily middle-class consumption. You also have rich people, but the bulk of the consumer market everywhere in the world is the middle class. So China will have the largest consumer market. And, and by the way, shortly thereafter, India will, because it has a younger population. So what I would like to point out, Mark, is that that doesn't mean that here in the United States we're going to be poor. So you don't have to be the largest market in the world or the largest economy in the world for your population to have a nice standard of living that continues to grow over the years. What is important, however, is to think about this other trend that I'm sure you're going to bring up at some moment here, which is inequality. You just read my mind. <laughs> right. I mean, what I think we need to address here in the United States and also in Europe and a few other parts of the world is inequality, right? Because inequality, when it grows too much, then it undermines the middle class. And as you know, here in the United States, it's very clear that the middle class, uh, the income going to the middle class has remained stagnant in real terms after adjusting for inflation over the last 25 to 30 years. And that's a problem. That's why we have so many political frictions, because people don't see that their situation is improving. And in some cases, it's actually getting worse. So the rise of China, I think, raises a fundamental question. Can we have not just a European and an American middle class in the world? Can we also have on top of that a Chinese middle class, an Indian middle class that will be competing not just for attention, but also for jobs, for resources, for all of those things? That, I think, is the key question for the 21st century, right? You mentioned that in Europe and America that the middle class is likely to decline over the same period that China is going to pick up 400 million more people into its middle class. So what are the implications of that? And you literally read my mind. What struck my attention is this idea that if we're having a declining middle class, then that means there's greater inequality. And if there's greater inequality, we continue to see the sort of this political sort of nightmare that we're living through right now, where there's just this massive polarity. There's no middle ground in terms of our approach to how we think things should be run. And, and I think there's a lot of anger around that. And mm -hmm. so do you see, like particularly in Europe and America, do you see adjustments being made where equality is going to get better? Well, uh, there are programs in place and there are, I think, ways in which we can address the problem of inequality. I don't think uh, we're taking it seriously enough. And by the way, the pandemic has made it worse. Because as you know, the pandemic, although the virus makes no distinctions, people are exposed to the virus, right? Exposed to infections and so on and so forth to varying degrees, depending on their type of job, depending on their income, depending on their access to healthcare, and so on and so forth. But you see, here's the problem, right? The problem is that it's not so much income, right? We've been talking about income. I think the problem is wealth accumulation because wealth accumulation has a very distinctive dynamic in the sense that the more you accumulate wealth, the better you are in the position to continue accumulating wealth, right? And as you know, one of the biggest debates here in this country is how come that, for example, African-American households have so little wealth, so as opposed to income, mm -hmm. right? Because wealth accumulation has this self-perpetuating aspect to it. So I'm not advocating here to abolish wealth accumulation or to you know, raise taxes to 90% or whatever, right? What I'm trying to say is precisely what I think you were suggesting with your question, that unless you keep wealth accumulation and inequality within certain bounds, you're going to get an increasing proportion of the population who feels that they're being left behind, who feel that no matter how hard they work, they can never really improve, right? And you're going to get, from the political point of view, I think you also mentioned frustration or even anger. And that is, of course, very dangerous. And it will feed polarization, which is another problem that you pointed out. So I think we need to break this dynamic. I think this has been going on for too long. I would probably say 20 to 25 years. 
And I think that the moment has arrived for us to prevent that from happening. And by the way, we haven't talked about technology, but the other issue that will Mm -hmm. only exacerbate this problem is technological unemployment. What are some ways that if you could wave a magic wand or actually better yet, just apply your wonderful knowledge and insight around this, what would you do? What would you be advising government leaders, business leaders to be thinking about and doing as we head into 2021? I think what we need to do is first become more keenly aware of the problem. So we've been discussing inequality for quite a while now, but I don't think we have realize that it needs to be towards the top of the agenda for business leaders, for political leaders, for community leaders, for everyone. Because again, otherwise it can completely undermine the fabric of society. And I think there are steps that can be taken. I mean, one of them is, for example, to level the playing field. Right now, I think one of the biggest contributors to inequality and to the reproduction of inequality over time is unequal access to education. And I'm not talking here about college. I'm talking about primary and secondary schools. As you know, depending on where you live, you can get a very good education here in the United States at the primary and secondary level, or you can get an education that is, well, leaves a lot to be desired, right? And a lot of it depends, by the way, on wealth. It depends on the tax base, especially the real estate tax base, because that's how we fund schools. So we somehow have to find a way of leveling the playing field so that every kid from K through 12 can get access to a good education. And unless we accomplish that, I think it's going to be very difficult to produce the increasingly high levels of inequality that we're seeing in the United States and in many other parts of the world. We have this idea that traditional leadership theory is pay people as little as possible and squeeze as much out of them as possible. And so should leaders, organizations, particularly corporations, large employers, be thinking about the benefits of being more generous with people instead of, you know, trying to pinch every penny in what we pay people and and even throw out to resist aggressively paying people a fair living wage? Well, I think it's a dynamic problem. So if we take a look at uh, the situation today and we examine how different kinds of people are faring, then we miss on what I'm about to explain that is what typically happens, which is that you have somebody who learned how to do a certain kind of job 20 years ago, and then something happens and the demand for those types of skills drops dramatically because of technological change, because of free trade, what have you. And then that person is 45, 50 years old and feels completely stuck, has to abandon that line of work because the jobs are disappearing, and then is forced to either drive an Uber, as you said, or go and work for a big retailer, I don't want to name any names, that Mm -hmm. pays very, very low wages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what we need to do is to help those people, again, who may continue to or could continue working for another 20 or 30 years because their life expectancy is going to be 80 or 85, right? We should help that person in their late 40s or early 50s go back to school. We should have financial schemes to help those people go back to school the same way that we give fellowships or grants or loans to people in their 20s. And again, I wouldn't be saying this if life expectancy were on average 65 years, Mm -hmm. but it's not 65. This is the issue. Well, I don't think we have grasped. I don't think we have really understood the full implications of the enormous increase in life expectancy. That's what I think we have completely failed to understand. What are the implications of that? The fact that people now live much longer. And not only that, once again, they remain in excellent physical and mental shape for many more years than in the past. I'm glad you've punctuated that. It's very much the theme of your book. But I think, you know, sometimes you have to hear it two or three times for it to really sink in. And you've done that. Something else that you talked about in the book that I just really want to get into is this idea of creative destruction. Joseph Schumpeter famously coined that phrase. And what he was describing was how new technologies are routinely disrupting the status quo, changing the concept of a product, the way it's made, how we sell it, how we use it, all of that. And so one of the three trends that you talked about was this technology component. So what are one or two examples of major creative destruction that you think we're really going to see soon? 
Well, I think the biggest one by far will be automation in the following sense. Up until now, most automation has been taking place in the manufacturing sector. And it mostly involves repeated tasks. So instead of having a human being performing them, we have a robot. And increasingly, of course, the robots are becoming more sophisticated because they are powered by artificial intelligence and so on and so forth. So if we continue down that path in terms of how that technology is becoming better and better, then we're going to start seeing that non-routine jobs will also be subject to automation. And then the next step will be, it's not just manual, either routine or non-routine jobs. It will also be cognitive jobs, right? So as you know, in the world of lawyers these days, has become readily apparent to everyone that law firms don't need any longer an army of young lawyers to do the research and to help put together a case. Now you can actually use computers to help you with that. So you need fewer lawyers. Very soon, I think, I don't think we're going to need as many airline pilots. The planes can fly themselves already. And I don't think we're going to need as many college professors like myself. Because when it comes to teaching an interactory class, I bet you that a computer would do a much better job. The computer will not forget about all of the important things, all of the important details, right? And we'll be able to produce examples in response to questions from the students. So I think the biggest change we're going to see in the next 10 years will be artificial intelligence essentially providing an alternative to cognitive workers. And that's going to be really, I think, a poco is going to be transformational. How long before all this happens? And, you know, by the way, there's another stat in your book that says that I think it's one and a half million to 2.2 million truck drivers are going to lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's just like evaporates all the traffic that we see when we're going on vacation. All that's going to be automated. And that means two million jobs just evaporate. Mm -hmm. So question number one is. How soon is everything you just described going to happen? I know it's going to be evolutionary, but when are we really going to feel it? And then sort of piggybacking on what you were talking about a second ago, where does the hot potato land? Is it government? Is it employers? Or is it the individual who has to take final ultimate responsibility for re-educating themselves and preparing themselves for the new reality and the new occupation. Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of the timing of this, as you said, it's gradual, it's evolutionary. There's going to be breakthroughs here and there. But in terms of the adoption of these technologies and therefore the displacement of human workers who will lose their jobs, I think that it's just going to be building up. And what we're going to see is that, for instance, when a new company enters the tracking business, and builds up its fleet, instead of using the old technology, they're going to start using the new technology, right? So I think it's going to happen faster in parts of the economy where there's a lot of creative destruction already of this new entrants, there's new companies that are always, you know, getting into the, uh, in that sector, that part of the economy. Now, whose responsibility is this? I think the problem will become so big that we're going to have to have governments, corporations, and individuals, communities work together to overcome this. And Mark, I think what I'm about to say may be controversial to some of your listeners, but I think we're going to have to have a national debate about a guaranteed minimum income. I think we're going to have to have a national debate about taxing the robots. You pay taxes, I pay taxes. I think the robots should also pay taxes. And then with the money that we collect, then maybe we can help those people who are displaced. We can help them go back to school and learn another trade or another occupation and another profession. We're going to have to think out of the box. And you see, some of these ideas five years ago were deemed to be radical. Mm -hmm. But I think we're getting to the point at which, and don't get me wrong, I think it's good that we will be able to automate. I mean, come on, if we don't have to work in repetitive tasks, or if we don't have to perform certain things and we can just reserve for ourselves the more creative roles in the economy, I think that would be good. But big numbers of people are going to be displaced. So we need to take care of them. Because otherwise, the economy won't work. And the political system, I think, would collapse. It needs to be more than a guaranteed income, though, don't you think? I mean, I know you do think so, because to the extent that somebody makes $50,000 a year, that's $4,100 a month. And so if you give them like $1,200, $1,500 of guaranteed income, that's not going to sustain anyone for very long. So there needs to be more than just making sure that people have a basic income, right? 
Well, I think it's a good start. I mean, I don't think, uh, quite frankly, people would go for much more than a basic income. Right. And I'm being optimistic. I think there will be a lot of opposition, political opposition to it. Mm-hmm. But I think we've gotten to the point at which we need to think carefully about what does it mean to have a consumer oriented economy when the middle class is no longer expanding. And the U.S., as you know, is a consumer centered economy. Nearly 70 percent of GDP is domestic consumption. And the bulk of that is supposed to come from the middle class. If middle class purchasing power is not growing. By the way, we are deep into debt already, both at the government level, the household level. Then where is the growth going to come from, right? If 70% of your GDP depends on domestic consumption and the prospects are that that part of the economy is not going to grow, then how are we going to grow the economy? How are we going to improve our living standards? You see what I'm saying? I do. It's a difficult problem. It's a difficult problem. It's a macroeconomic problem. It's also a political problem. And that's why I think that a basic income could go a long way. So it's not of a universal kind. I don't I don't believe at all. I'm flatly opposed to a universal basic income. Not everybody should get it. Mm-hmm. I think it should be needs-based. And I fully realize that then that requires bureaucrats to determine who deserves it and who doesn't and so on and so forth. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that unless we change everything, and I don't think that's possible, I don't think the model that we have in place right now, the economic model that we have in place right now can work without a middle class that over time does better has a rising living standard. And unfortunately, we haven't had that for the last 20 to 25 years. Meryl, I'd like to take a brief break from our conversation and ask you a few questions about your personal interests, influences, and life philosophy. So we're stopping our conversation briefly to do this. We call this our heartbeat round because all the questions are brief and we want you to answer each one instinctively and quickly, in other words, in a heartbeat. So are you willing to give it a go? Absolutely. Okay, great. When 2030 arrives, will you be more likely to have a support robot or a pet dog or cat? I think a pet dog and cat. Your strategy for remaining resilient and mentally healthy during the pandemic? To try to look for ways to break with the routine, to take a walk after each meal, and to try to stay connected with people. Magazine or newspaper you never miss reading? The New York Times. Trait you admire most in other people? Um, Tolerance. One industry we might not recognize in 2030? Retail. One book you believe everyone should read? Um, Any random biography of Winston Churchill. And not because he was a genius, but rather because he made so many mistakes over his lifetime, but then he learned from them. I had Eric Larson on the podcast a few months ago, and we discussed his book, The Splendid and the Vile. So magnificent topic. Thank you. Cultural value every organization should have? Um, Absence of dogmatism. The quality that derails the most leadership careers? Overconfidence. One piece of advice you'd give your younger self? Read widely. Your synonym for the word heart? Um, Beat. Beat? Beat as in beat, B-E-A-T. Okay. No one's ever given me that answer before. That's really interesting. (laughs) Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Travel to the most underdeveloped parts of the world and put things in perspective. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Patience. (laughs) Amongst all your predictions about the future, what's the one you're really certain is going to come true? Um... The importance of this age group at the age of 60. So the what I call the, the gray market. One attribute that characterizes the most high-performing Wharton MBA students? Um, their personal drive. A piece of Spanish wisdom you'll always remember. You have to strike a delicate balance between idealism and realism. And if you remember... That is the subject of the most uh, important, yes, uh, book in the Spanish language, exactly. Well, that's great. That's wonderful. I was an English literature undergrad, so I read Don Quixote in Spanish. That was a requirement. So as soon as you started speaking, I was like, oh, I know where he's going with this. So fantastic. These are great answers. Thank you for going through this with me. I want to get back to our regular conversation. We're ending 2020 going into 2021. And after a year of adapting very suddenly to COVID and the pandemic, 
including for many millions of people working from home, spending hours on Zoom calls instead of being face-to-face with their colleagues. In what ways do you think our work lives will be permanently changed? So some things are going to regress. We're probably going to go back to the office at some point, at least, you know, some days a week. But what's permanently changed? Well, I think you're right. We're going towards a hybrid model. Because I don't think anybody was happy working five days a week from the office. And I don't think anybody is really happy about working five days a week from the home, right? So either extreme has limitations, has problems, and there's a trade-off there. I think, you know, the right way of thinking about the future of work, especially office work, that's what we're talking about here, is to think about these technologies. And of course, they're going to get even better than what they are today not as something that will enable us to substitute one way of working for another, but rather technologies that may help us become more creative and more productive. I think that should be the goal, right? The goal is how can we make people more productive and more creative? And of course, along the way, more satisfied with what they do. Because in this global economy, unless employees work hard and they're creative and they're productive and they're happy, you're going to fall behind. So I think that's the name of the game. The name of the game is we've gone through a huge experiment out of necessity over the last eight months or nine months. What have we learned from it? How can we rearrange work, office work in particular, in such a way that we're more creative, we're more productive, we're more competitive in this global economy? I think that's the challenge. And of course, we're nowhere near having found the right arrangement. I think we are in the midst of a big experiment and we need to learn from it. And then we need to start figuring out what is the best way of arranging our work week in such a way, once again, that we're more creative and we're more productive. In light of that, if you had the CEOs from the top 100 companies around the globe in one room, you on the stage, what would you say are the most important trends and disruptions that they must address and adapt to this year? So 2021 going forward. Well, if I had to prioritize the most urgent things, I would say prepare for the moment in which the U.S. domestic market is no longer the biggest in the world. Prepare for the moment in which we should not be expecting people to retire when they're 60 or 65. It's pretty much all of the things that we've talked about, right? Mm -hmm. Those for me are urgent in the sense that it's not that they're going to doom us tomorrow if we don't deal with them, but they will certainly limit our standards of living in 10 years from now if we don't start to tackle them now. Because again, the clock is ticking in the sense that you can't wait until these things have happened, until we've reached the tipping points to act. You have to start acting now because this is like changing the direction of a super tanker. It takes several miles, right, (laughs) for that to happen. You cannot wait until the last moment. And the changes are so big and so across many different kinds of fronts, from population to technology to the economy, emerging markets, and you name them. So unless you start going through the mental exercise of thinking, okay, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to prioritize so that in five to 10 years from now, we are ready to deal with that new situation. And by the way, going back to the very beginning, you have to resist two temptations. The first one is thinking that you can swim against the stream, okay? That I think is really important for us to realize. And the second one is that you can turn the clock back. (laughs) Excuse me, there are people out there, consultants, politicians, especially politicians, who will tell you, oh, vote for me. We can go back to the good old days, 10, 15, 20 years ago. That's impossible, Mark. That's not going to happen. It's just simply not going to happen. So I think the only way forward is to adjust to these changes, to prepare ourselves and to prepare everyone in society, everyone in the company for all of those changes. We will end it there. Meryl Guillen, I want you to know this is one of the most enjoyable and informative conversations. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. And it's almost entirely because of you. You're this actualized, enlightened, generous and extremely gracious person. That energy comes through the ether. And I just want you to know, I'm sure our audience can feel it, but just the way you communicate and the way you think. The students at Wharton are very, very fortunate. And I just want to thank you on behalf of my audience. It's been a wonderful hour with you. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. And of course, you are a tremendous host as well. Oh, thank you. I bow to that. I appreciate that very much. Best to you, sir. Happy New Year. Thank you. Same to you. Just a quick note before we go. Our podcast now has an audience in 145 countries around the world, which is both humbling and exciting. And so now, of course, we're hoping for world domination. Seriously, we'd be so very grateful to you if you'd help us continue our growth by sharing episodes with your friends and colleagues, and even taking a moment to write a review of our show on Apple Podcasts. As we see our audience grow, we're encouraged to keep the podcast going, and so we thank you in advance for your support. I want to thank my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz, not to mention the podcast's biggest supporter, Ken Boynton, and I also want to wish you a safe, happy, and very prosperous new year. In the meantime, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley, signing off for now. Thank you.